Welcome to Basecamp, where men join together to seek deeper understanding of authentic manhood and apply principles from God's Word to our daily lives. If you're looking for the next level in men's ministry, join us and experience a life of Christian fellowship with men sold out for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May God be praised. Good morning. Everyone have a good Thanksgiving? Did you eat a lot? Good, because we're going to talk about sin today. Um, I have this uncle, his, his name was Uncle Tommy, and he was like one of the best people I know. I mean, I love this guy so deeply. And when he was just 62 years old, uh, he developed some really bad jaundice. And he had these other health complications that were going along with it. So they immediately took him in and they checked him for, checked his liver function. It seemed like the most obvious thing to do. Um, and they, 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 they ran an x-ray of him and everything looked completely clean. No spots, nothing on his liver. So they figured it must be hepatitis or something else. They treated him for that. Uh, but he kept getting worse and his condition kept, kept on deteriorating. He didn't get any better. Um, so they took him back in for a CAT scan this time to take a little closer look. And when they looked at the CAT scan, it revealed something entirely different. What it revealed was, in fact, no part of his liver was clean. The entire thing was completely overrun with cancer. So it was just the opposite of what the doctors saw. Now, why, why do I bring up that, that, that story? I share it because this is a talk about sin, as I mentioned. And I think like can cancer, like the cancer that was in my uncle's liver, People have become so corrupted by sin that they can't even see it, okay? It's, it's, it's so overtaken us in our bodies that it looks normal. And so we really do need to spend some time thinking about this thing, the doctrine of sin. I know we're talking about the doctrines of what we believe here today, but I want to try and just get a little more practical. Uh, I want us to look at, you know, what is sin in, we're supposed to be talking about sin and man, but I'm really going to be talking more about what is sin in man. How does it shape us? Um, what, is it, what does it look like? How does it work? And finally, what, if anything, can we do about it, okay? So um, I think it's a good time to pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that uh, you reveal all things to us as you seem fit. And God, this morning we ask that you would reveal a little to us, Lord, about ourselves and about the state we're in and our need for you, God. I ask, God, that your spirit would be among us in these conversations this morning and that only your spirit would speak this morning, Lord. I pray, pray that you be with us and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so. Oop, I think I just did something. What is sin? All right. So. I'm going the wrong way. Okay, sin is not knowing which way to use on the clicker. There we go. All right, just some, some you know, theological definitions. One is actions that violate the law or moral standard of God. Okay, there's another one. Sin is a lack of conformity to the moral law of God, either in act or disposition or state. Okay, we could also look at some lexical de definitions. What does it mean in the original languages? In, in, in Hebrew, in hata, uh, it can be translated as to sin or to miss the goal or path of right and duty. In Greek, the word's amartias, where we get the thing that we call sin, harmatology. <laughs> Sorry, it's early. Uh, 
And that's at a departure from either human or divine standards of uprightness, okay? So, so we see in these some elements of missing the mark or departing from God, but I, but I think we need to look deeper, deeper than these sort of theological or lexical definitions, and we need to see how sin is really revealed in the Bible. So let's take a deeper look, and we're just gonna start right where sin first shows up in the Bible, right? In Genesis 3, two through five. The woman said to the serpent, serpent uh, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat. From it, touch it, or touch it, or you will die. And the serpent, okay, look at this, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat uh, from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, now we know how it all, how it all goes from there. Eve eats the fruit, she shares it with Adam, and voila, we're cast into sin for the rest of our days. But I want us to look at what we can derive just from this specific test, a text. And what I want you to note is that first is where sin originates. Okay, not where it enters the world, but where it originates. It doesn't originate with even Adam, as you all know. It originates with who? Satan, with Satan yeah. In all his sinful pride, he sought to exalt himself above God. Um, so the prophet Ezekiel says this, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until righteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. Isaiah 14 likewise says this, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol. You will, you know, to the recesses of the pit, okay? So look at that. Satan says this, he says, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. That's not a statement about honor or obedience. It's just the opposite. Satan wants to overthrow God. That's the origin of our sin, Satan and his pride. That's the sin that was passed on to all of us. A sin that wants to overthrow God, okay? Or at least set him aside. We see this clearly in scripture. Paul writes in Romans, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Um, so like Satan, we know God. We have ample evidence of his existence, but we still refuse to honor him. Okay, again, Paul writes uh, in Romans 3, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. Not, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Are we having fun yet? It's hard. So you can see that the picture we see in the scripture is not just some departure of God and his law, okay? It's not just, just a departure from God. Uh, it's not just an innocent wandering away. It's open rebellion to God. God says go left, sin says go right, right? God says sit, sin says stand, yeah. God says go Washington football team, sin roots for the Cowboys, right? <laughs> Sorry, I know, I'll kick you when you're down. <laughs> but you get the picture. Sin is rebellious. If we fail to see this, we fail to understand sin in its most insidious ways. 
Um, we're not just really misguided sheep programmed with some gene for wandering. We are hosts to a deliberately rebellious virus that controls our very being. All right. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how, um, how sin works. Um, put another way, we want to look at how it is manifested in the world uh, and in our lives. And to understand this, I want to take us through Paul's, uh, what Paul looks at uh, when he considers the relationship between sin and the law, because that's going to give us a good picture of exactly how sin works. Um, and we're going to be looking at, at Romans 5 through 7. Of course, we don't have time to do the whole thing. We're just going to look at bits of it. But, um, uh, but you know, what we're going to see here is that the law was never intended to eliminate sin. The law was intended to show us how deep in the doo-doo we really are. See, prior to giving the law, there was no way for us to see or understand the depth of our rebellion to God. <clears throat> he needed to give us some form of a measuring stick, right? Um, so he gave us a law to show us our total inability to not rebel against him, our total inability to be obedient. Okay. We are slaves to our rebellious nature. This is what he's kind of going to show us. So like I said, we can't go through all of 5.7, of but if we look at a few verses, it's going to, I think, help enlighten this concept a little bit. Um, so we'll begin with Romans 5.13. Uh, For until the, law was, uh, uh, until the law, sin was in the world, uh, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Okay. So what does this tell us? For one thing, sin was always with us. Since the fall, it has been in the world. Adam was infected, and he passed it along to all his kids, which includes you and me. All right, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so theologically speaking, this is what we call inherited or original sin, okay? So we're gonna get, there's, there's your doctrine. Um, the sin, however, was, was not imputed to us until the law. He's, okay, the word imputed there, uh, egoleo in the Greek, it means to keep a record of something or to charge um, to an account. So, so God did not hold us accountable for our sins for giving us the law or the measuring stick with the lens through which we could understand a sinful state. Knowing this state, though, along with Adam, we're guilty before God. So now that we know, our sin is imputed to us. So original sin, which leads to our, our, our sinful nature and condition, this is always going to be with us while we are alive in these bodies. It's incurable in this lifetime. But as we know, and as we'll see, Imputed sin has a cure in this life, praise God. That's Jesus. <clears throat> so moving on. Uh, Romans, uh, looking at Romans 5, 20 to 21, says the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to focus here on that first uh, use of the phrase that's translated there, so that. Um, and this is what's known as a hina clause in, in Greek, hina being the conjunction that's used. You, you probably all know that by now with Marty as your preacher. Um, this conjunction can be used in two ways, okay? It can demonstrate a result or it can show a purpose, okay? That is to say, it could be read as the law came in and as a result, trans transgression would increase. Or it could be read as the law came in with the purpose of transgression increasing. So we may be tempted to gravitate towards that first understanding because it seems odd that God would make a law that purposely increases transgression, right? It seems counterintuitive to us. Uh, but we need to be careful. 
You see, it can't be result because that would mean that God intended the law to do one thing and something else happened. In other words, it would, it would imply that God somehow failed. God doesn't fail. Um, <clears throat> so while it seems strange to say that the purpose of the law was to increase transgression, that is exactly what Paul is saying. See, the law provokes the sin within us, thus giving us a clear picture of our inability to control our sinful nature. The law comes along and our sinful nature takes over and rebels. Okay? It's God's plan working out for us. Uh, we're going to see this a little more fleshed out in Romans, in Romans 7. Uh, verse 5, Paul writes, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Okay? Again, the picture we see is uh, an otherwise dominant sinful nature that's awoken by the law of God. God uh, Paul goes on to paint this portrait of uh, in the next verse, in verses 7 and 8, he, he paints a portrait of how sin reacts to uh, law in the members of our body. He says, um, uh, for what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. May genoito. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would um, not have known about coveting if the law had said, do not covet, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from law, sin is dead. So you see again here, our sinful nature Uh, when faced with the commandment of God, produces in us this desire to do just the opposite. It stirs up this rebellion. Uh, Paul goes on in verses uh, 7, 11 through 13 to say, For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin uh, by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. The law, therefore, serves to show us, again, the depth of our spiritual depravity. It serves to give us a gauge to understanding sin. Uh, Sin takes the law of God, designed to preserve us, and drives us so fiercely in the opposite direction that it destroys us. From here, Paul then leads us through uh, the outworking of sin, or more specifically, the degree of control our sinful nature has over us, okay, in some of the next verses, which I'm just going to run through quickly. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. It's not out of ignorance that we sin. We know what God wants. Like Paul, we may even want to do it, but we can't, at least not on our own. And he goes on to say uh, in verses 16 through 18, But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. And in verse 19, he goes on to say, For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I no longer... I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And finally, he concludes with this powerful statement I'm sure you all know well. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? So where does all this take us? 
I think it brings us again to the full realization, or at least does for me, of, of, of my sinful state. Okay, what we term total depravity, okay, in theological circles. We're powerless to overcome sin on our own, and it's our acceptance of just that point that separates the believer from the non-believer. The non-believer rejects the notion that humans can't be naturally all good based on their own merit. They believe only on, in their own strength, and that's a mistake that Satan uses to keep them in the cycle of rebellion uh, with God. Let me, let me paint one more picture of that. This man is Oleksiy Novikov. Have you heard of him? He's one of the strongest men in the world. He weighs about 300 pounds, but he recently deadlifted over 1,000 pounds. You can imagine that. What does that mean? He means he can, he can deadlift more than three times his own weight. But even that, as strong as he is, he can't lift himself even one millimeter off the ground, just like the rest of us. Without some help, I'm not talking about jumping, I can't lift myself up. See, as strong as he is, he's in this state, just like we all are. We can't lift ourselves up. We can't save ourselves. All right, so what can then we do? Um, I'm going to leave this part to Harry, uh, who will cover it in a couple of weeks. And uh, Luckily, I just have to talk about sin this morning. <laughs> I, mean, I know he's going to do a great job. Uh, I'll be the bad cop, and, and Harry, you can be the good cop. That's got to work out well. Um, I think you all know the answer. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit given us the grace by the grace of God. By this saving grace we overcome, all right? Romans 8.1 spells it out. Therefore, there are, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Okay, so if you can't wait for Harry to read the rest of that chapter, you'll be good. Um, but in the meantime, I do want to leave a few parting thoughts that hopefully will help us come to grips a little with our sin and embrace the grace that God has given us uh, through his son. Okay, uh, the first, first thing I want us to think about, number one, accept yourself. That is to say, accept what you do know. You're a sinner, and you'll never cease being a sinner until you die. So stop striving to be righteous on your own merit. You're only going to wear yourself out, and you're just going to end up just going down a path road of, of despair. Okay? Second, <clears throat> search, yourself. search yourself. Explore what you can know. So you've got this gift of insight into your spiritually broken state as a believer, which means you're in a position to see how sin manifests in your life. I want to use another metaphor here. and I've used this before, so I apologize for those of you who, who may have heard this already. Um, but it's a, it's a helpful one, at least it is for me. And the metaphor is that of a house, okay? You're a house, and every house has four things. A trophy shelf, a junk drawer, a cow on the roof, and a septic tank, all right? The trophy drawer shelf represents all the things that you know about yourself and you want everyone else to see it too, okay? This stuff's worthless when it comes to spiritual growth, okay? You don't need to spend time there. The junk drawer represents all the things you know about yourself, but you don't want anyone else to see, okay? It's the stuff you keep hidden. Brothers, you need to spend some time there. I do. We all need to spend some time there, okay? We got to clean out that drawer. Um, you need trusted accountabilities, your brothers at your table, people in your life that you, can, you, you know you can go to to help you clean out that drawer, okay? Cow on the roof. Every house has a cow on the roof. I know, you're looking at me sideways now, right? 
The cow on the roof represents all the things you don't see about yourself, but everyone else, or at least some others, can see, okay? It's like this, I tell you there's a cow on your roof, and you say, there's no way there's a cow on my roof. Shut up, Alec, don't be ridiculous. But I say, ah, you're sitting inside the house, and you're looking out at me, but I'm sitting here on the sidewalk, and I see it clearly. And it's big, and it's ugly, and it smells, and it just dropped a pile of something right there on your roof, right? We need to be accountable for with each other, and that's another way we are, okay? We need, to, we need people to tell us the things that we don't see. Um, finally, there's the septic tank. This is the one that represents the stuff in your life that you can't see, others can't really see, but we smell something. We smell something there. This one's so critical. Uh, you know, we may see anger, but we can't recognize years of abuse as a child that may have led to it. Okay, we may see alcohol abuse, but we can't see underlying depression. We may see lust, but we can't see marital trouble. You, you get the picture. We, we, need to, we need to explore our septic tanks because this is all the unresolved stuff, the stuff that will never go away unless we dig it out and deal with it. So please, look deeper than that surface sin because there's likely something more there that's leading to it. Um, the most important part of all these, who sees it all? God. God sees it all. Psalm 139, right? We just learned, Marty just preached on this. He searches and he knows the hearts of all. So don't forget that he's the one that you really need to be asking and leaning on before anything else and wrestling with these issues of sin. And he's there, and he's there for you. Um, this brings me to my, my third point, and I'm just about to wrap up here. Uh, forgive yourself. Okay, because what you need to know is that you've already been pardoned for it all. Jesus died to release you from condemnation. He didn't succumb to death. He overcame it. Uh, there are always consequences for sin. We all know this. And God accepts a contrite heart, Psalm 51, right? But we render our confession less powerful when it's not accompanied by accepting forgiveness. Um, I noted before from Psalm 139, as we know, and we all know inherently, God sees it all. But I want you to consider how amazing it is that he also forgives it all. Could you imagine if he didn't? Could you imagine if he recorded all of our virtues and all of our vices and then held off judgment for a later time? Could you imagine that if you had to live out your life wondering if you were worthy enough to be saved based on your behavior? That, my friend, is the false god of every other religion on the planet. But that's not our God. Praise God, that's not our God. He sees everything and he forgives it all because he paid the price for it all. And if he loves you that much, if he forgives you that much, shouldn't you extend yourself that same courtesy? Finally, forgive yourself. I mean, sorry, fill yourself, okay? And this is about who you need to know, and the answer is pretty obvious. You need to know God in all of his triune splendor. You need to be filled by the Holy Spirit through constant prayer, dedication uh, to, to drinking in the scriptures. Don't just read them. Live them. Own them every day through serving and loving one another and through all the abundant ways that we've talked about and you know, we talk about on these, on these Tuesday mornings. Just fill yourself. See, when you're filled with the Spirit, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're free. You know, my uncle, I told you about, he died a while ago. He died 32 days 
after getting that cancer diagnosis. 32 days, he was gone like that. But you know something? He came fully to grips with the state of his condition, and he embraced it. He embraced it because he knew his Creator, and he loved his Savior, and it just poured out of him, it exuded out of him. Uh, the night he died, it was in his home in Westminster, Maryland. Uh, I was not there, but my mother was. Um, and she said that there was a smile on his face that she couldn't understand. And there came this overwhelming sense of peace and power that, that even numerous non-believers in the room could not deny. That is how we're lifted up, not by our own power, but by the power of the one who loved us enough to die for us. That is sin defeated. It's all there. Okay. So I want you now um, to, to consider some of these discussion questions based on our metaphor before. What's on your bookshelf and who have you told? What's in your junk drawer and who have you told? What's on your roof and who have you asked? And what's in your septic tank? It's a bit of a trick question because we're not really sure. But how can we find out? Okay. Just some practical things to talk about. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father God, you did deal with sin once and for all through the blood of your Son, Lord. You have saved us from our sinful selves. Thank you that you love us and you forgive us so deeply and so completely that we never, ever have to, to be apart from you because of our sin. Help us, Lord, now to grow in your spirit that the sin might decrease in our lives and our righteousness might increase and that, Jesus, we might become conformed to who you are. We just ask that you walk with every man in this room this week, this day, this year, that you watch over them, you guide them, and you love them. In Jesus' name, amen.